Well, I love uh, fairy tales. I'm sure many of you do too. And an old favorite of mine is Hansel and Gretel. I remember a brother and sister are abandoned by their, their father in a deep, deep, dark forest. And there's not enough food to eat. And so the wicked stepmother says, send the children away. And as you know, as the story goes, Hansel takes pieces of bread and leaves them to create a path that he and, sis, he and his sister can follow so they can find their way home. Well, however, Hansel and his sister soon discover that birds have gobbled up the bread, meaning they are lost and cannot return home. Well, while there's a lot more to the story, the point I want to focus on is the bread Hansel used to mark the path to follow. Because he used bread, there was no path due to the ravenous birds. And although you and I are living in anything but a fairy tale, as we journey through life, God has given us another path to follow, a path that not only guides us, but one which one day will lead us home, a path that is not made up of edible pieces of bread, but a path that is solid and trustworthy and not susceptible to disappearing by the vicissitudes of life. Last week, I began this three-part sermon series titled Waypoints of Faith in a World Filled with Joy, and pain. And as we know, a waypoint is a navigational tool used for all kinds of things, but in our journey with Jesus, there are waypoints of faith, if you will, that will help guide us through all the joys and the sufferings, things that will help us not only to make it through, but to grow in so many ways as we journey our way one day home. For a moment, here's a very quick review of of last week. Life is indeed full of astonishing blessings and joy and wonder and good things. So many people are wonderful and kind and non-judgmental and open and giving and supportive and serve in selfless ways. It's all around us all the time. And I also suggest that each of us is well served by reflecting upon and giving God gratitude for these enormous, extraordinary blessings that just enfold us and surround us continually. But in the midst of that, there is also much pain and suffering, isn't there? And this has been the way it has always been, and no, things are not worse off now than they've been before if you study history. Pain exists in the midst of blessings, and blessings are present in the midst of pain. That said, fundamentally, goodness, what is right, restoration, reconciliation, healing, forgiveness, and love prevail when it's all said and done. And sometimes these happen with certain people in varying circumstances in this life. But sometimes we have to wait for such things for the next life. But the bottom line is God and goodness and love prevail. With such blessings and pain in mind, I suggested that Jesus does not give us the option to pretend that everything is just great, that we are compelled to act and help love overcome wherever we find ourselves, that while we cannot possibly carry all the world's problems, we can respond to what is right around us, along with mightily praying for the macro issues. And finally, I spent time exploring how people over the centuries have responded in a variety of ways to suffering. 
that our reactions and our doubts and our struggles don't reflect an absence of faith, but rather the fact we have a relationship with God, even if it is topsy-turvy at times. Well, this morning as I continue this series, I want to spend more time on this subject of joy and pain. And at first, I want to get into just a few ideas proposed over the, over the centuries by theologians as to why suffering and pain exist to begin with. And none of us today will be satisfied with what I offer. I'll be just skipping across the surface the topics, if we really got into it, take a lifetime to study because this subject has been written about for centuries and struggled with. The Greek philosopher Epicurus in the late 2nd and 3rd century put the problem this way. If gods have the will to remove evil and cannot, they are not omnipotent or all-powerful. If they can but they will not, then they're not benevolent or good. And if they're neither able nor willing, then they're neither omnipotent nor benevolent. His point as a philosopher is that if God exists, if God is good and all-powerful and all-knowing, then why is there evil and suffering to begin with? Good question. This spells the crux of the issue, doesn't it? That countless theologians, people of faith, people with no faith, non-theistic philosophers have struggled with since human beings could think. And in response to this problem, here are just a variety, a few, few, just top surface level variety of ideas people have, have come up with. And you will notice that none of the ideas that I'm going to cover very briefly offer answers in a completely satisfying way at all. Because any idea that anybody has ever proposed leaves us with questions like, yeah, but what about? Or that concept doesn't deal with all the ideas are inadequate by themselves. Thank God, God is God. To begin with, John Hick wrote in essence that suffering exists to help us grow. That pain helps us in the shaping of our souls. That suffering, he argues, enables our development spiritually and morally. It makes us mature that without suffering we would not cultivate virtue or character. That God designs the world he and others have written not to shield us from hardship, but to facilitate our growth through our encounters with danger, difficulty, and misfortune. Hicks' ideas have deep roots that have gone on for centuries. Paul even wrote about this and took this approach in his letter to the Romans when he wrote that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint because he writes in essence that love prevails. So all this we can put under the category that pain exists to help us grow morally and spiritually and in our relationship with God. But when we're suffering, when we're at the bedside of somebody we love that is taking their last breaths, hell with growth. There's pain in front of us. Another common view of suffering dates back to Augustine in the 4th century and many others since that time. And this view basically says that pain and suffering exist because we misuse our free will. 
and that we do. In essence, this perspective says that God created a good world and gave us free will. And we've talked about this in other settings. That, For example, that if you take free will away, there is no love because love demands free will. But aside from this, free will we can use for good or for bad every moment of every day. And Augustine, as others, in the 4th century onward, have said that human beings misuse their free will. And the consequence of that misuse is suffering. Suffering even of those who are innocent. And are we not seeing the misuse of free will in our world today? And on the streets right here in this community? Other people, however, note that Yes, there's free will, but the problem is evil. That evil is what causes suffering and pain. This idea suggests that evil tempts us and lures us to use free will in destructive ways that lead us away from God and therefore others. Now these writers that write about evil being the problem don't suggest that it gets us off the hook. The devil made me do it but they suggest that evil is the cause. And one example from Scripture of this is found in our reading today from Luke. In the story, we're told that evil entered Judas. It caused him to betray Jesus. And think of the suffering that resulted from what evil did to Judas. Skipping across the service further, there are those that are known as liberation theologians, and they don't spend their time trying to explain why there is suffering. Instead, they spend their time talking about how we are to respond to it. And generally, folks in this camp speak of how we're to participate in God's struggle against suffering in the world, a struggle which involves direct confrontation with the sources of suffering and all the injustices that cause it. Social justice issues, poverty and oppression, and dealing with such things comes from this whole liberation theology camp, thank God. And most of these folks originated in the global south. And over time, they've had an impact on we in the north. The cross and the resurrection in liberation theology is interpreted in terms of our struggle against evil and the misuse of free will. And to trust that God will prevail in the end. Then there's a whole other group of people that also doesn't get into the reasons of suffering because they can't explain it. But what they do say, this whole group of people, and there's so many, simply say that God is a God who suffers with us. That God is involved in the problem of pain because God suffers. A person named Jürgen Moltmann is part of this idea, as was Martin Luther of Reformation fame. Moltmann writes, a God who cannot suffer is poorer than any human. For God who is incapable of suffering is a being who cannot be involved. The one who cannot suffer cannot love. And he concludes that God suffers because God is love. Another person writes, The suffering Christ is God's way of participating in our human despair, taking it into himself and replacing it with hope. 
And the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, only a suffering God can help us. This view also holds that suffering is not the end, but that love and restoration will prevail, but that God suffers with us in the meantime. And then, of course, there are those that suggest that pain and suffering is a result of God's wrath and judgment upon us. You hear this in the news, don't we? Jonathan Edwards long ago said, people deserve to be cast into hell. Divine justice never stands in the way. Justice calls aloud for infinite punishment. That's a loving God. And finally, others suggest the reason for pain and suffering will always be a mystery. Simone Weil said, whenever we look for final causes of suffering in this world, it will refuse us. In this world, Christ himself asked, why, why, why? Why is there pain? And suffering is a mystery and will be, she writes. Julian of Norwich once said, in essence, that our blindness will be removed in the next life. And then we'll understand. And perhaps this is why Paul wrote, in part, in his letter to the Romans, when he says, we will never figure God out. Is there anyone around who can explain God and God's ways, Paul writes? Anyone smart enough to tell God what to do or what to think? Has anyone done God such a huge favor that God needs our advice and counsel? Paul writes, it's all a mystery. He writes to the people in Rome. Well, to summarize what we've covered thus far is some view suffering as an opportunity for growth. That suffering is due to our free will and misuse of it. That it's due to evil. That we can't explain it, but we can help God address what is wrong. That God suffers with us. That God punishes. That it's all mystery. These seven concepts reflect just a sampling of what people have come up with over the centuries. As it's been the crux issue and challenge for people of faith since inception. And I believe that as I look not just at these seven, but all of the other, many of the other writings, that there's truth to be found in most, but not all of the ideas out there. Some of the concepts are off base and not consistent with what we know about God. Like it or not, we do grow from pain, don't we? And pain, however much we hate it, can shape us and mold us and soften us. Not make us bitter, but soften us and kinder and gentler and more empathic if we let it. We do make rotten decisions. Maybe you don't, but I do. And rotten decisions lead to pain. They're hurtful to ourselves and to others. The big word for that is sin. Evil is out there, and it does mess with us. Evil has messed with me in my life, messed with our staff, messed with the chapel, 
messed with every community of faith that moves closer and closer to the love of God. And evil causes great suffering. Indeed, we need to show up as Jesus' presence in the world and address what is right in front of us as liberation theologians compel us to do. Indeed, God does weep and does groan and does suffer. One example, of course, being the cross. And yes, there is much mystery. I also think that God is not a God of punishment, but rather justice. And there's a difference. A moment ago, I mentioned Julian of Norwich. She lived and died in England in 1416 is when she died. She was an extraordinary person. She was a mystic and an anchoress. An anchoress was a hermit, basically, that lived in one place. And an anchoress was a way of living that predated the whole monastic movement. Regarding God's wrath, Julian of Norwich writes... I see no wrath except on man's side. And God forgives that in us. And she writes, wrath is nothing else but a perversity and an opposition to peace and to love. As I suggested earlier, no concept about why we suffer and experience pain can deal with all the questions, all the nuances, all the subtleties, or all the possible ways in which people have suffered and cried out over time. And I agree that all of our questions cannot be answered on this side of life. That there is much mystery and much we don't know. And that's where faith comes in. Trusting. Trusting. That said, I believe our walk with Jesus is infused with hope, isn't it? Think Easter, among other things. Love does prevail. And I love what Julian of Norwich wrote in 1380 as she was suffering. She wrote, all shall be well. You heard that phrase before? It comes from Julian of Norwich. She wrote, all shall be well. All shall be well. All shall be well. She repeats over and over. All manner of things shall be well. Because of the love of God, she goes on. Well, as we struggle with pain and suffering, and as we celebrate and relish and give thanks for our immense blessings, remember in the midst of all I've just described, there is all this joy and all this wonder and all this magnificence that's continually around us. But as we wrestle with God, as we emote, as we respond in ways I've touched on last week, as we ponder what great and even some small minds have written about why suffering and pain exist to begin with, I think we do well to keep some basic things about God that we can trust. There are things that we can trust, our faith tells us, our Christian story tells us. There are things that we can trust about God as waypoints as we make our way through this world of joy and pain that are far more than breadcrumbs that disappear. Now, I need to be very brief here, and I'm probably getting into far too much. But as I go through, very briefly, what we can trust about God, 
I ask you to think about which of any of them seem to grab your attention. Is there something I'm saying and will review that seems to be more relevant to where you are right now? And it could be that God is inviting you to focus on that one aspect of God that we can trust, just that one, wherever you are in life right now. And I pray right now that God's Holy Spirit will grab each of our attention which is one of these aspects of truth about God that can be helpful to us in our life right now. So here's what we know about God. Here's what we can trust about God. In the midst of all the questions, in the midst of all the mystery, this is what we can know about God and trust. And just think if there's any one of them that grabs you more than another. And I'm going to be very brief as I whiz past these. Here's what we can trust. God's a commitment keeper. We can count on what God has promised. Eternal life, for example. Easter. God does what God says God will do. God is all-powerful. There's nothing that God cannot do, even if we question it. There's nothing beyond God's capacity. God is all-powerful. It is a scriptural theme from Genesis through Revelation. Same with the idea and the nugget we can trust that God is all-knowing, that God knows everything there was, everything there is, everything there will be. God knows everything about each one of us. (laughs) There are no secrets. God is relational and intimate. God wants more than anything an intimate, personal relationship with you. 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 As you look out at the night sky and view the billions and billions of stars, was it Carl Sagan that said it that way? Just think that the Creator wants the relationship with you. God is creative. Look at the creation around us, but it's more than just about creation. It means that God is creative when coming up with solutions and ways out and ways of being that we haven't discovered yet. God's a master at creativity. God is present. There's no place that God is not. God is everywhere. Here, there, everywhere. God is guiding. God wants us to turn to God, to seek God's counsel, advice, and help, and to seek God's perspective. Always in the midst of our questions and pain and struggling and joy. God is indeed vulnerable. Throughout Scripture we see this. God is vulnerable. God experiences pain and suffering. God is hurt by human action. God experiences all we do as human beings. There's no human experience God does not know firsthand. God weeps and grieves with us. Just a few more here. And again, hopefully some will seem to grab you more than another. God overcomes. When we're at wit's end, when our tanks are empty, when we have nothing left, God's Holy Spirit within us overcomes. God is forgiven, forgiving. We are forgiven. There's nothing that has not been forgiven that you or I have done. All of it is laid on the cross. All of it. Let go of the guilt. Let it go. (sighs) Embrace God's forgiveness and be free. God is healing. God is a healer in mind, body, and spirit. Healing is not just about physical healing, although sometimes physical healing happens. 
But there's more to healing than physical healing as we're all moral and fallible. But God is a healer. God is understanding. He understands our humanness. The fact we blow it. We make mistakes. We make rotten decisions. We're imperfect. God is understanding when we do things we wish we wouldn't do. And God understands us, but also celebrates the gifts that God has given us and our use of them. God is restoring and makes everything right. Whatever is broken, wherever there are shattered lives, wherever there are broken relationships and spirits, God restores and will make things right, whether in this life or the next. God is mystery. There's much we do not know about God, and who can truly know God's ways, Paul writes, as we said. And not knowing everything hopefully keeps us humble. I'm not sure I understand huge egos. We don't know everything. We're human. We don't understand everything. And what this means is that we can let God be God and trust God and turn the unknowns over to God and lay them with God and leave them with God. God is love and as God prevails, love prevails. And as we say over and over and over and over and over and over again, as Jesus said, love is the whole deal, the purpose, the reason, the essence of everything. And finally, God is eternal. And your future and mine is secure. Which of these waypoints do you need right now? As you look at this list, which of these waypoints is God inviting you to grab onto? I know we've covered a ton of things, far more than I like to cover in one sermon, but it's my prayer that something will stick with you, something will help you in your journey in faith, something will serve as a waypoint in this time of joy and pain. And next week I will wrap up and focus on ways we can respond to our pain in the midst of all that is good. Some action steps we can take. So as we wrap up this week, I invite us now just to some silent moments, to some quiet prayer. Amen.